The CFOs that get it, get it. The CFOs that don't, don't. Let's talk about the CFO, the Chief Financial Officer. There are two kinds of CFOs. One who's struggling to keep up, spreadsheets everywhere, manual processes. It takes weeks to close the books. The other kind is on top of their game. Automated reports, inventory, commerce, and HR flow into the financial model seamlessly. NetSuite is everything you need to grow all in one place. That's why NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system used by over 28,000 growing businesses. 93% of businesses increased their visibility and control after upgrading to NetSuite. Head to netsuite.com slash c-suite for a special one-of-a-kind financing offer. That's netsuite.com slash c-suite. netsuite.com slash c-suite. Get the inside track on 20 top business trends for 2020 from Joe Block. Joel's insights bring Wall Street to your street so you can profit from the inside in 2020. Just text the word TREND to 72000. That's 72000 and download your free copy today. Grab your phone and get the inside track on business trends that affect you and your business. Just text the word TREND to 72000 for your copy now. This is Profit from the Inside with Joel Block. Insights to give your business the inside track. And now, here's your host, Joel Block. How can I get my employees to be more committed to the company and our projects? How do we motivate them to be their best? Well, to answer those critical questions, Krister Ungerbach. Krister, welcome to the show. I'm glad to be here, Joel. Hey, so this is a fascinating topic we have today. This is something really uh, extraordinary. When you told me about it, I was pretty excited about this. So your whole thing is really about changes in language change the way that we get outcomes from the people we talk to. Correct. Okay. So uh, just give us a little background. So I guess the the book that I wrote is Talk Shifts, 22 Talk Shifts, Tools to Transform Leadership in Business and Partnership and in Life. And where it came from is I was CEO of a software company, fairly successful software company. We grew 3,000%, had hundreds of employees worldwide. And about four years ago, I found myself at the YMCA signing up for a gym membership. And when she asked me, who is your emergency contact, I had no one. And in the weeks leading up to this moment, I had walked out on my job as the CEO of the company that I'd helped build and loved. And two weeks later, my wife walked out on me. And this company that I'd helped build was a family business. So my business partners were my father and my brothers. And despite reading business books and leadership books since I was 12 years old, I looked in the mirror and saw that I had become a leader with no followers. And so I looked outside of the business world. I I set aside my bookshelves of business books and said, I'm going to look outside of the business world and for the secrets that had kind of eluded me all those years as CEO. I used to say, if you want to find surprising secrets, you need to look in surprising places. And so what'd you find? Well, kind of started with the fact that I was going through a marital divorce. So naturally I was started to immerse myself in the relationship research And I ran across 
the research by uh, basically the world's renowned researcher on marriage and divorce, and he's able to predict breakups after watching a couple have an argument for 20 minutes. And he looks for four specific communication patterns. And what struck me is that these same four communication patterns would have predicted every business breakup in my entire career. Executives I'd fired who'd left to the you know, competition, uh, naturally my relationship with my brothers and father, uh, and also my marriage. And I, so I started thinking like, what if there's something to be had taking the principles that typically people only learn when their marriage is dying and applying it to senior executives and CEOs. I mean, I was a CEO. I interact with a lot of CEOs and CEO peer groups and the dynamics of a committed, any committed relationship. If I'm a VP in a company and I've been there for 10 years and I've got stock options or golden handcuffs, or if I'm a CEO and I've got business partners, like these are committed relationships that's very, very difficult to walk away from. And what I learned is that the dynamics of those committed relationships at the highest levels in organizations start to resemble the dynamics of a marriage. And so a lot of what these talk shifts are, I mean, I'm, I'm taking some things that I learned from the business world and combining them with things from the relationship research in order to take things out of that context and provide people tools to drive employee engagement, employee retention, and all-in commitment. And, uh, and it seems to be resonating pretty, pretty widely. All right, so tell us what's in the book. I mean, what, uh, what, what is a talk shift? What does that mean? So a talk shift is, that, so there's simple fill-in-the-blanks phrases for shifting uh, the way we think about our communication with others or specifically shifting a conversation. So one example that senior executives tend to like is there's one, uh, I think it's talk shift number nine, is about how to give an autonomy raise instead of a pay raise. And it's a simple question to, you know, ultimately I left my role as CEO because I felt like I was running a company with employees in eight countries with both of my hands, you know, tied behind my back. I didn't feel like I had the autonomy to really make the decisions to keep this company growing 20 to 30%. And the simple question that would have shifted that would be if we had had a conversation between my board, which was ultimately my father, the controlling shareholder, and he had said, Krister, on a scale of one to 10, how much autonomy do you think you have? And I would have said a four. Now, he, would have, he probably would have thought it was a nine. But the difference between him thinking it's a nine and I'm thinking it's a four prompts the next question, which is, so what's the difference between a four and a nine for you? And then we can start identifying specific actions in terms of increasing autonomy. So talk shift number nine, for example, is not only something that a boss can ask employees to increase their level of commitment engagement, but it's also something that an employee can start a conversation with their boss if they're feeling micromanaged. So a lot of the talk shifts are, you know, again, simple questions to start conversations that can either be used kind of bottom up or top down to shift a relationship and shift uh, frustration at work and, or as I kind of mentioned before, uh, it can also be used at home. No, you know, that uh, that's pretty interesting because if you ask somebody, uh, do you feel autonomous, they're going to be nervous to say no. So they'll probably say, well, yeah, pretty good. You know, I mean, but you know, when you force them to pick a number, yeah, uh, that, that probably is a little more truthful than some others, you know, yep. I mean, that's, that's pretty good. So give us another example. 
Well, you get to talk shift number five is specifically about asking questions on a scale of one to 10. So what I found is we say that talk shift number five gives words to those seeking their voice and courage to those seeking their volume. Because as you pointed out, if I ask as a leader, someone, you know, how much autonomy do you feel you have? There's really only one right answer to that question, which is yes. Yeah. (laughs) Sure, boss. I think I have a lot of autonomy. You want to be as positive as you can be, right? So by shifting the way we ask questions, we give people more latitude. And then I talk in talk shift number five about, you know, don't just say on a scale of one to 10, how much autonomy you have. Say on a scale of one to 10, 10 being you have the most autonomy of any job you've ever had in your life. And one, you have the least. So I exaggerate the scale because now even a seven, if, if I exaggerate the scale far enough, even a seven sounds kind of good, right? So I'm really widening the goalposts to have a deeper conversation and really, you know, eliminate this, you know, yes, 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 and yes answer. Well, I mean, look, I, I guess the goal here is not to be scientific. The goal is to uh, you know, get more inside the head of another person. Yeah. And I think that a lot of the thing, the talk shifts, there's, they need to be introduced. So one of the things I do, like you probably took the quiz at talkshift.com slash quiz. When people take the quiz, they get the key sample chapters that they can actually share. So let's say, for example, I, I want to have better conversation with my boss or with my spouse or or an employee who reports to me, the easiest way to do that is I offer some of the f- chapters for free, and then you could share talk shift number five with your boss or with one of your employees and say, here's why I'm going to start asking this question in a new way. So it's about creating a shared uh, understanding and using the tools out of the 22 talk shifts to create that shared understanding. And then what I found is if I invite my employees or my colleagues to say, hey, I'm, I'm going to practice these new communication tools. You can hold me accountable. And, you know, I had one where an executive I was coaching, it was happened to be a woman. Her boss asked, uh, she, she was kind of a top performer on the team. And her boss asked about the performance of a low performer on the team. And I think he said, well, you know, what do you think about Bob or whatever? And of course, that's never a comfortable conversation, especially in COVID where there's not a lot of jobs to go around to recommend that somebody be fired. I said, well, you can use the reverse shift number five and say, are you asking me on a scale of one to 10, 10 being Bob is the best employee on the team or that I've ever worked with. And one being he's the worst. Are you asking me on a scale of one to 10 where I would put it? And then I said, well, in fact, the best thing to do is to say, well, boss, what do you think? And the boss said four. She said, well, I would tend to agree. I think you're, you're, I think you're right. That's interesting. You know, I mean, communication is a complicated thing, and I'm no expert in this. I mean, I'm just a regular guy like everybody else. But what if, um, what if the person you're talking to is just a jerk? I mean, they're they're just. They're, I could use more colorful language, but I won't. You know, what if the guy is just a really not a good guy, and and you you're talking to him? I mean, does it make any difference if you have a discussion or if you put it on a scale of one to ten? I mean, does this work better on some people than other people? I mean. Well, so ultimately for many years, uh, well, I would say decades, I I thought that my father was that toxic boss, uh, the jerk. And it was, it was actually about a year and a half ago, I read to him the, the book. 
there were some, in the previous version, there were some difficult stories for him to hear in the book. Uh, so I wanted him to hear it before it was published and hear it from me. And it was actually the process of reading the book to him and experiencing it together about three quarters of the way from the, through the book. He said, Christopher, I had no idea how my words had such a negative impact on you. And it was really the catalyst for transforming what's been uh, certainly a, probably a 30 year troubled relationship so much so that it, after writing the book and you know, it's coming out, I actually filmed a video book because I really believe the most powerful impact that the book can have is when two people actually watch the book together so that they're experiencing the same content and discussing it after each chapter or at least the chapters that apply to, to them. So whether it's watching it with your spouse or an adult child that you have a troubled relationship with or a team at work, that's really the intention. I say talk shifts are a team sport. And so I believe that the interesting thing is sometimes it's just one out of the 22 talk shifts that can sh completely transform a relationship between two people. Um, Listen, you don't, you don't need to master 22 uh, things and one or two of them, uh, you know, are going to turn everything upside down for the better, you know? So uh, I, I certainly can, can see that happening. Yeah. And, and that's really, it's interesting. I, in the feedback, I probably had about 300 beta readers before the book uh, was published and it's all over the map. When I ask, what's your favorite chapters? Like there's, I mean, there are a couple of chapters that people tend to nominate, but I'm always surprised when somebody said, you know, that was my favorite chapter. And I said, I thought that was actually one of the weaker of the 22 talk shifts. Uh, yeah. You, you know, never know, do you? Whenever you write a book, there's always going to be some chapters that are better than others. And, uh, so it, it really is, it's, it meets different people uh, in different ways. So what's the, um, have you, have you uh, field tested a lot of this material? You know, what, what are some of the results that happen in the field? Well, I had one CEO, uh, a woman uh, entrepreneur who has about a 20 or 30 employee company. And she, what, what impacted her most was, some of the things around ways to actually share what's really happening, uh, you know, kind of some of the fears we have as leaders. And she said after two months, uh, the tone in her office shifted completely. And, and the, she, she started talking and I, admittedly, I don't know if I would have done this, but she decided to start talking about some of her fears about making payroll to her employees. And she said that after she did that, she saw a level of commitment from her employees and her employees were like actively starting to upsell things that, you know, she'd been asking them to upsell stuff for years. And so it was the tools in the book about how to share some of those, you know, kind of things that we're afraid to share as leaders that uh, in many ways gave her courage to, to be more real. You know, there's a lot of talk these days about the concept of psychological safety. Are you familiar yeah. with that? Oh, yeah. Okay. Very familiar. So, you know, where employees have to feel safe that like their boss isn't going to yell at them when they come up with a new idea or they're not going to be laughed at or, you know, that they just they feel comfortable to express themselves in a reasonable way. And, you know, if you take a step back, we all can understand and relate to this uh, situation. If you mock people, they're not going to be comfortable if you... Uh, belittle their ideas, they're not going to want to share. And for senior executive corporate leaders, the last thing in the world you need is for your, your people who are on the front lines not to share what their experiences are. Does this address, maybe not using that exact language, but does it address uh, people, you know, 
being more comfortable or more psychologically safe in their environment? Yeah, I mean, I think that uh, while I don't talk specifically about psychological safety in the book, the tools are practical tools to get there. I would probably say six or seven of them are specific phrases that increase psychological safety in different situations. Uh, I'll mention another thing that's not in the book. I, I, I was always a very sarcastic person, you know, about it's one thing about belittling one person's ideas. I had a CEO group that I was part of that I was facilitating a, about a couple of years back. And one of the CEOs was one of the most sarcastic people I've ever met. And we had a pretty good relationship. We you know, had done things outside of the CEO group and we were friends. And uh, this group I'd been helping facilitate for about a year. So we all knew each other. And at the beginning of one of the meetings, I, I, I made a sarcastic joke at his expense. Let's say his name was John, right? And, and so the interesting thing is at the end of the meeting, like none of the other people necessarily knew that we were really close and friends outside of this meeting. One of the CEOs spoke up. Actually, one of the more forceful CEOs spoke up and said, you know, when you kind of made fun of John, it actually made me a little bit less likely to share what my thoughts are because I didn't want to be the next person who's the butt of your jokes. And, it, and we kind of had a laugh and like, oh, you know, John and I are really good friends. Like this is like, this happens all the time. Yeah. You know, that, that's an interesting thing. I mean, that, um, that to me, you know, there's in, in whatever CEO group, you probably had a professional facilitator. I mean, at that point it was their job to say, Hey, listen, you know, this, this is not an okay uh, thing. And you make some ground rules. Companies yeah. also need ground rules. Well, I mean, in this case, I was that facilitator. So oh, you, you, were, you, were, you were the group leader. Oh, well, that's, uh, uh, yeah, <laughs> I guess you learned something that day, huh? I definitely did. I definitely did. <laughs> but, but, you know, corporate leaders really need to um, be, be thinking about this, that if their people don't, uh, if they're getting laughed at and there are people who are just, you know, just not nice people. And we could, again, use more colorful language than that. But if they're not nice people, they really are toxic in the environment and they prevent other people from uh, speaking up. And, and so I guess the whole, uh, this, this whole discussion that we're having is really about getting people to uh, voice their opinions in a better way, maybe in a little more specific way. Is that, is that part of it? Yeah, I mean, that's, that's absolutely the core of what the talk shifts are. The, the second talk shift, which is one of the most important, is around the toxic boss. And I do mention that, I don't say this in the book, but I've said before that, you know, there are no toxic bosses or toxic spouses. There are only toxic, there's only toxic communication between two people. And what I found is that, you know, one of the things I found is my heart was in the right place as a leader, but my words were not. And so I did uh, about seven or eight years ago, I did a, actually it was almost 10 years ago now, I did an anonymous confidential 360. And I learned that I was that toxic boss. Uh, and uh, there was a story like uh, I, I had, I opened up my scores and I had like 199 out of 200. And I'm like, who's the good leader now? And then the facilitator said, if your score is close to 200, that's not a good thing. I was like, uh Oh, <laughs> um, and so what I realized, and for every kind of tough driving boss like I was, that I don't think anybody wakes up in the morning and says, you know what, I think I'm going to be a jerk today. The challenge is that the people who are jerks don't know about it. And so the fundamental shift for those individuals is to start to get visibility 
and it comes back to your thought of psychological safety. If I don't, if I don't create an environment where my employees or people around me feel safe enough to tell me the behaviors that really just reduce their commitment, then I'm not going to become aware of those blind spots. And one of the things we do with the talk shift assessment, which is an extension of the free quiz, is we actually involve family members in that process. Because what we found is that while your employees might not be comfortable telling you what really frustrates them about your communication or your behavior, your family probably will. Interesting. Uh, because I would imagine, uh, you know, a lot of family members are, you know, in awkward situations too. Yeah. You know, that's not always a perfect situation. And yeah. uh, I just have seen a lot of situations that are very tough. Yeah. And I, I, what, probably one of the things that I find most rewarding is when I see two people in a family, usually, you know, husband and wife, and they take the talk shift assessment and they rate each other. And they actually see, I can actually see from their responses. We get thousands of responses uh, per week now, so I don't look at them anymore. But I can actually see where they had no idea that both of them are rating themselves high, but they're rating the other person low and they're rating each other low as well. So that assessment uh, between a spouse or between an adult child um, can be the catalyst for a broader change in someone's behavior, both at home and at work. And when it's really powerful is when those leaders see that the things that their spouse or adult children are saying about them actually line up with what their employees are saying about them as well. So how many, how many people do you think really have good self-awareness? I mean, even, even at the most senior levels of, of companies, yeah. uh, how many people have really good self-awareness about what their strengths and weaknesses are? And then, and need this kind of inter, you know, this this kind of asset <laughs> intervention. So, so there's. Well, some- I, I was gonna, I, I was gonna say that, but it's not an intervention. It's not, uh, you know, you're not doing an intervention on a person. I mean, you're just a person is is learning. They're gonna learn. They're gonna grow. Maybe it's yeah. a little different. Well, hopefully, people are volunteering to do it themselves. So there was some research that I quote in the book in the Harvard Business Review that says ninety five percent of people think they're self aware yet only 10 to 15% actually are. And, um, and so I, I thought I was one of the most self-aware people on the planet. I was, you know, I was very well aware of my weaknesses, but I think many people are somewhat aware of their weaknesses. What they're not, they're not aware of is the d- degree to which their weaknesses have a negative impact on others. Um, so I think there's two things. There's blind spots that we learn about things like, oh, I had no idea that when I said things like that, that it hurt you or reduced your commitment. And then there's the other things where we accept our weaknesses like, oh, I always thought I'm not an empathetic person. I'm not an emotionally intelligent person. That, that was just not something that I was in my DNA. So I thought, okay, that's a weakness I'm going to have to live with. Um, obviously, when my relationship started crumbling around me, it was something I started to look more closely at. But the but so what we find is when people start to enter into those conversations and start to learn, I may just, yeah, I, I've talked to a lot of entrepreneurs and senior leaders. It's, you know, the whole strengths finder movement, focus on your strengths and like, just forget about your weaknesses. I, I think there's a little bit of a fallacy there because if, if my one weakness of being too domineering or too driving is actually the thing that's actually causing people to shut down and I only get a fraction of their, you know, my, mental effort, then that's a weakness that I need to neutralize. Um, 
Yeah, so I think there's a little bit of a difference between. You know, people have different communication styles, partly based on their uh, their upbringing, their culture. I mean, there's many, many influences. Communication is a very uh, different thing based on where you live in the world, based on uh, where your parents grew up. I mean, it's a lot of different things. Do you think that um, a lot of the race relations problems that we have in the country are somehow related to communication and our ability to talk to each other? I don't know. I haven't really, I haven't really thought too much about that. I think I, because of my own personal experience leading teams in French and German, I see, I, I think there's a lot of, there are a lot of assumptions that because we grew up in say a German household, my father's Austrian. So he came from that Germanic kind of very directive, but the interesting thing I saw and uh, people who study foreign languages call it context switching. I could, I saw somebody who's when they're speaking in German, they would be the most aggressive person. And when they switched to French or English, which was just another language that they learned, they would be docile. And so I think that we all have it within us to learn these other things. And it really does come down to communication. I had a girlfriend who spoke English, French, and German, and she was almost like a different person when she was speaking these three different languages. So did her personality change or was it just that her words changed? It was her words that changed. That's all. I don't know which one did you like better. Maybe that's the one you want to hang out with. <laughs> we mostly we mostly spoke English, but I really liked I, I liked her most when she spoke French. So, <laughs> yeah. Well, listen. So learn French and and maybe would it worked out better? I, I or maybe it still did. I don't know. You know, but uh, that's fun. Um, so what uh, what are some of the big takeaways? You know, what are some of the big things somebody can expect? They read this book. Uh, you know, I mean, nothing is magic. They have to implement the stuff. But, you know, what can somebody expect to be to be different after they've uh, studied your material? I mean, I honestly believe that it can transform both personal and professional relationships. And at the end of the day, what I find is that, um, and a big part of the reason behind why I wrote is, I think there are many male successful leaders like myself who will read 20 business leadership books before they read a single book on relationships. And the other thing I learned from the research is that uh, women initiate divorce twice as frequently as men. And when they do, they've typically been thinking about it for over a year, which means when you get, when your relationship gets to that point, and I think the same thing happens with employees, when somebody gets to the point of saying, I'm leaving, if you decide that now is the time that you're going to start improving your communication, they're already mentally gone. And so I wrote this book, one, to create better leaders, but also to give leaders the tools to be better parents and better spouses before it's too late. Do you think once you're kind of far down that path with an employee or somebody else that it's, it's fixable or, or is it uh, irreversible? Well, I, I can speak from personal experience that my relationship with my father went um, pretty negatively for 30 years. And I, it all comes down to desire. So if an employee has a lot to lose by leaving, then yeah, it may just be easier for that employee to leave and go get a job somewhere else. But if they've got stock options, and they've got tens or hundreds of thousands of dollars on the line, there's a big cost with leaving. And the same thing happens in a family, right? If I'm if I, if I have adult children, 
then maybe there's just not as much pain of divorce. But if my kids are 10 years old or 13 years old or seven years old, then usually it, it's, there's probably a pretty good incentive on both parties to make that relationship work or at least make it significantly better than what it is today. Yeah. Well, any, um, you know, we can, we can kind of uh, wind down on this, but are there any companies that you know of that have really gotten some of the great results that you had hoped for when you wrote the book? Well, two of the companies that have probably been the leader, well, uh, it's actually the same company now, but LinkedIn and Microsoft uh, have been probably some of the leaders in what I call the compassion revolution. So the, the talk shifts are kind of tools to fuel what I call the compassion revolution. And you look at Microsoft CEO Satya Nadella. So Bill Gates in 25 years built a $500 billion company. Satya Nadella using primarily compassionate leadership in six years created $1 trillion of shareholder value. So I think we kind of looked at leaders like Bill Gates and Steve Jobs, and we saw these enormous successes they created. And we just kind of assumed that that was the way to lead. And we never asked ourselves, is there something even better? And one of the things I learned on the journey is that the Steve Jobs, uh, the person who invented the iPhone was not the Steve Jobs who fired people in elevators. That was the Steve Jobs who was fired himself from his own company in 1997. Steve Jobs emerged from the ashes of his prior self. And that was the man who invented the iPhone. The man who invented the iPhone was the man that Ed Catmull, the CEO of uh, the chairman of Pixar, who worked with uh, Steve Jobs for the longest of anyone, said the Steve Jobs I knew was not the man who fired people in elevators. He changed significantly after he was fired from Apple and he had got married and he had kids. So, well, maybe he had some, he had some issues, some anger issues and stuff that he just, you know, dealt with, but you know, listen, this, this is a, uh, this whole discussion really is the inside track on some really significant communication issues. And, and I think that if companies want to be better, faster, and smarter at addressing some of these uh, issues, I think that some of the things that you're talking about are really, uh, they should be on the menu. I, uh, I, it's, it's, it's starting to resonate. And so uh, I'm, I'm, I'm hopeful that, I, I think that this book wouldn't have been nearly as successful before COVID because it's really caused leaders to, from all walks of life, to have a, a, a little bit more compassion and empathy given all the pain in the world, uh, you know, also from the race relations and everything that's happening in the United States, there's just so much pain to go around and leaders are, are called today in 2020 to lead in a very different way than we have ever been called to lead in the decades prior. You know, I'll tell you kind of off topic here, but uh, I've, I've noticed even myself, my heart is soft in a few places. I, mm-hmm. I just, I just have, uh, I mean, I, I'm in general rather compassionate. I'm, I'm not a bleeding heart, but, but I, I, you know, I care about people. And, and more and more, I'm really seeing people hurting, and it hurts me. And, and I just, uh, you know, and I, as a society, we have to do better. There are places we have to do better. I, I don't agree with everything that is on the table, but I think that there are things that we can do better. And, uh, and listen, I think that, that that's a great way for us to wind this down. Is let's just make it our goal to do better. And let's make it our goal to just take care of each other and lead in a better way, lead in the best way we can and gather all the tools. And uh, your tools are uh, great tools to uh, add to any executive's library. Yeah. So 
thank you very much for sharing your concepts and for being on our show. Thank you very much. It's just the last thing I'd say to the listeners to take the talk shift quiz at talkshift.com slash quiz and join the compassion revolution. Well, Christopher, thank you very much for being on the show. You've been listening to Profit from the Inside with Joel Block. For more insights and to learn more, visit joelblock.com. How about a shout out and a giant thanks to my podcast producer, David Wolf, and his team at Podcast and Radio Networks. Profit from the Inside simply wouldn't be what it is without David and his team. For more information or to learn how you can launch and produce your own podcast, reach out to podcastandradio.com. Get the inside track on 20 top business trends for 2020 from Joel Block. Joel's insights bring Wall Street to your street so you can profit from the inside in 2020. Just text the word TREND to 72000. That's 72000 and download your free copy today. Grab your phone and get the inside track on business trends that affect you and your business. Just text the word TREND to 72000 for your copy now. Produced by Audavita Studios. Connect your voice to the world.